This is the Monday, July 31st, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine pushes the throttle deep into history, blowing past the centuries like exits on a Roman highway. When we land, we'll be in the 26th year of Augustus Caesar's reign. We'll stop by the Colosseum to ask the question, while the lions are preparing to feast on Christians, what were the people in the seats eating? Questions like that gave rise to today's unique story, brought to us by Crystal King in Feast of Sorrow, a novel of ancient Rome. In it, we'll meet infamous gourmand Marcus Gavius Apicus, credited as author of the oldest cookbook known to exist. Having packed a lot of history into my own book, Regional Greek Cooking, I found it a clever and tempting vehicle to meet the man who pioneered what we think of today as a basic tool of feasts. Our story begins with Apicus, a very wealthy man, probably the richest guy in Rome. But money can't buy happiness, right? And it can't buy Apicus what he covets the most, to be culinary advisor to Augustus Caesar and cement his own place in history. To further this goal, Apicus pays for a young chef, Thracius, and brings him home to run his kitchen and catch Caesar's eye. Once there, Apicus's wife, daughter, and handmaiden flesh out the cast of characters, with plenty of opportunity for dangerous liaisons and plenty of other Roman characters passing in and out of the tale to advance the plot. This is Crystal King's debut novel. She's a social media marketing and communications veteran, freelance writer, and Pushcart-nominated poet. She has taught classes in writing, creativity, and social media at Harvard Extension School, Boston University, Mass College of Art and Design, UMass Boston, and Grub Street. She's also a former co-editor of the online literary arts journal Plum Ruby Review. King received her M.A. in Critical and Creative Thinking from UMass Boston. Visit crystalking.com, follow our guest at Crystal Lynn on Twitter, or toss her a like at facebook.com slash King. The spelling is C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-L-Y-N. Okay, now that we've belted on our togas and traveled back to ancient Rome, let's join Crystal King and enjoy Feast of Sorrow. I'm joined on the line by debut novelist Crystal King, author of Feast of Sorrow, a novel of ancient Rome. 
Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Thank you for having me. On Amazon, you have 98% of your reviews are five or four star. 83 of those are five stars. 2% are three stars. And you don't have a single two or one star review. Nothing negative at all on Amazon. It's almost all five stars. It's an incredible accomplishment here for Feast of Sorrow for you to please everybody. Who pleases everybody with anything? This is incredible. For me, I've been really blessed to have been able to reach people in a way that I just I never would have anticipated. I think that ancient Rome is such a foreign place. It's very far away in our imaginations. And while we have some understanding of it from our memories in school when we had to learn about ancient Rome and ancient Greece, unless you're an aficionado, it just might be very far away. So I really was surprised at how well received it was. I'm just really, really lucky that I'm able to reach readers and get them as excited about this era as I am. It's really unlike any book I've seen in the flood that comes across my desk. And it's not only amazing that you wrote it, but that you got an agent. You tell that story there at your website, crystalking.com. But also that you found a publisher that was willing to take it and say, this is a unique idea. This is not like something else on the shelf and publish it. But that first moment of inspiration that you have to have to take you through that long road to getting on the shelf, explain that to us. Take us back to that. What inspired you to write a book about, of all things, an obsessed foodie and then set it in ancient Rome? Well, it definitely came about in a very roundabout sort of way. Originally, I was getting my master's in critical and creative thinking at UMass Boston, and I was working on a nonfiction uh, book proposal for exercises for creative writers. And when I went to shop that book around to agents, they were interested in it, but they said, you don't have any credibility other than this master's degree. You actually need to write a book or you need to have somebody else write a book with these exercises and you needed to teach. So I went and taught. And then I thought I'd write a contemporary novel about a celebrity chef who had a crazy set of knives that had passed through the centuries. And I needed an origin story for those knives. So what I did is I, I happened to be reading a book by Roy Strong, who is a food historian, about banquets and feasts. In fact, the book is called Feast. And it has one line in it about how this guy, Apicius, died. And I'm not going to tell you how, but I thought... That is, oh, I didn't even know he was dead. Yeah. So that is the one thing we know. We know how he died. And he was somebody that died in just a really strange and interesting way. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to write for my origin story. So I started writing that as a scene that was going to be in this other book. And then I got going and I thought, this is so much more interesting. I definitely... I'm going to write this instead. So I wanted to tell the story of how he got to that crazy ending. You talk about the ending there. The first line of Feast of Sorrow is my next question. I always look at the first line, particularly pay attention to it because I could see the hammer and the sweat and the deleting and the overwriting and things. The first line of Feast of Sorrow is, quote, Marcus Gavius Apicius 
purchased me on a day hot enough to fry sausage on the market stones, unquote. 17 words, and you make them all earn their keep. They do some heavy lifting, as I like to say. They tell us the narrative station, his relationship to his boss. They introduce food and the taste. And by avoiding that modern-day cliche of frying egg on a sidewalk and saying instead sausage on market stones, we tell people you're not today, you're in the past. So all of this is included there in those 17 words. Authors may agonize over those opening words. They may sit there spending months. They may tear up a whole bunch of them. You feel like you've done physical work with the pick and the axe and the knife. So I wonder if that was how it was for you, or did this hit you like a lightning bolt on day one? Where on that spectrum from agony to eloquence did you fall? Oh, wow. I definitely agonized over the first 15 chapters a great deal. And that's because when I first started workshopping it, I was really trying to figure out whose story, whose point of view did I tell it from? Because I knew how the book ended. That was the one thing I knew is that how the book was going to end. I had to figure out who was going to tell the story to get us there. And if I told it from Apicius's point of view, it would give away a lot of that ending because I want that ending to have a punch. And so I toyed with how do I tell it? Do I tell it in third person? Do I tell it from Apicius's point of view? Do I tell it, you know, how do I do that? So I ended up telling it from Thracius, who is the cook or Quolcus, his point of view. That first paragraph did go through a lot of pick and hammer. I think that one of the funny things about this particular paragraph, though, is that I used to have the F word in the paragraph. The last sentence of that paragraph says, I thank the gods for the day Bulbus realized that a good cook was worth 10 times his weight in denarii and decided it was more advantageous to sell me than to sleep with me. And it used to have the F word in it. And when I workshopped it, people loved it. I actually did a, a live, basically a celebrity author reading where I had actually Alessandro Nivola, who is an actor who did Coco Before Chanel, and he's, he's been in a lot of different things. He actually read the first page of this to a panel of editors and agents, and they had to say yay or nay on that. And half of them liked that paragraph with the F word, and half of them were really turned off by it. So I, it was just really interesting to see that when it finally got to my publisher, my editor was like, nope, that's got to go. <laughs> so <laughs> start it. <laughs> and you were open to that too, which is also important to have that give and take with an editor. I know when I write things, I'll say to people, give me the negative things. You got to give me three things, not necessarily negative, but what didn't get to you and what didn't reach you. Oftentimes people don't think anything was until you really probe them. And by the same token, when I have somebody write something and say, well, you look at it for me and edit it. I say, okay, but I'm going to really kick the tires because that's what you're asking me to do. I'll rip it all apart, and then you can keep all or none of the things that I suggest. I love that give and take between you as an author and then people that are giving you advice, people that know what they're talking about, because it's ultimately your job to make sure that people are receiving it well, and it's your job to reach them. You can't sit there and say to yourself, I mean, you can, but it's going to just be a, you know, a bunch of pages in a box, right? That, well, you just didn't get me. You made sure here that you cast a wide net, which I really like, and you can tell when you read the book that that was something that you put effort into. And that's something that you had to learn, I'm sure, because this is your first novel. 
Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm working on the the second book now, actually, and it's going so much more smoothly. I feel like I sort of know what I'm doing now. Whereas in this first book, it was a lot more trial and error with how the passages worked with certain scenes. I really struggled actually with the length of the book because the story spans about 40 years. And to be able to do that and to go deeply in depth into the characters' lives and into some of the, the stories themselves is tough. And at the time when I was shopping it around, I had a hard time finding an agent because of the length. Publishers often don't want books that are too long from a debut author because if it doesn't sell and it's in hardback, it costs them a lot of money. So I had a tough time with that. Agents wanted more in some of the scenes, but yet they wanted me to cut the number of words I was using, which is mm-hmm. sort of doesn't work very well. But I lucked out when Touchstone um, took me on. My editor said, this is the right length. And she actually had me add passages into the book. Yeah, you can always add in, right? It's not like a haircut. Right, exactly. Taking out is sometimes a real challenge because you have a vision for the book and you'll be the one who, you know, as I said here, 98% are four and five stars. If you cut too much and you can't do it, it's just not right. So just like cooking, you have to have certain ingredients are going to have to be in there. You can't make chicken Parmesan without the chicken. Exactly. So you have to have certain things that are just key to it. And you could see that. I like that. It was a tight and fast read. And I was also thinking when I read in your promo material that you used to share the bias against historical fiction. And that made me think of people who love the Roman period. They can get pretty hardcore. As we see here in Amazon, though, they're not out with the pitchforks and the torches after you wanting to throw you there in the Colosseum. I wanted you to speak to them directly because there are people who don't like historical fiction. There are people who are so into Rome that maybe think, well, a novelized version of it isn't for them. Pitch to them why they should pick up Feast of Sorrow. Yeah, so early on, I was not into historical fiction at all. And I think it's because I had read some historical fiction that I just didn't, it just didn't resonate with me. And really, history itself is a story. You know, historians piece together facts, and they try to put together a narrative of how those facts work for us. So it's, those are stories as well. I think what is wonderful about historical fiction is that if you've got somebody who's writing great historical fiction, and what I hope that I was able to accomplish was that you have facts that are well known, and you try to stay as true to those facts, but you give a human element to it. You're enabling people to step into history and to experience what it was like to walk down those streets and to be in those situations and those scenarios and to eat the type of food that they might have eaten. And so that's something that I've learned to really gravitate towards and to love. I think that this time period, it's challenging But it's also extremely fascinating. It's very similar in some ways to our own culture today. Ancient Rome was an extremely advanced society. They had running water. They had advanced mathematics. They even had the early workings of what might end up have been batteries and robots, very small, simple mechanical types of things. They had incredible knowledge and culture and literature. And much of this all went away after Christianity took their foothold and started to eradicate everything that was ancient Roman because it was considered to be pagan. And so then you had the Dark Ages. So, But what was really interesting, I think, to me is that when I started researching all of this world itself, 
how accessible it was. The readings of the ancient historians are super interesting now. Even as a modern reader, I can understand them. I can appreciate them. I can be excited about it. And that's what I wanted to bring into Feast of Sorrow. I wanted to get people, I wanted them to feel comfortable while they were reading. You mentioned about tasting things, about the food. That's such a big part of the book. And that's another one of those writer's classes things where they tell you, make sure you touch on all five of the senses. Taste is a huge one. It's front and center. And people often overlook that when they're writing. And when they're reading, the story just doesn't seem as real if you're never tasting something. And yet it can add so much. We're in a Rome, though, without pizza or pasta, no tomatoes, no lemons. It seems impossible to us today. So how did you go about researching the sorts of things that Thracius is going to be serving here on Apicius's table and then conveying it to readers who maybe have tasted nothing like it? So the great thing is, is that there is a cookbook that still exists. And that's actually what is super exciting to me about this whole era is that this cookbook, it has Apicius's name on it. And it was compiled in the third or fourth century. But there are recipes in that cookbook that definitely came from very ancient kitchens, even in times potentially before Apicius lived. And he lived um, in my book about 1 BC to about 38 AD or CE. And the cookbook, it has these incredible recipes that we would actually recognize in a lot of ways now. There is a recipe in it for French toast. It's almost identical. Huh. There is tapenade, Roman absinthe, which is actually closer to vermouth. Haggis is a recipe in the book. Hmm. You can definitely see the origins of that dish. And you can imagine that when the Romans conquered that part of the world, that's where it came from. And, and the people there really gravitated towards that. And there's all sorts of just really interesting types of dishes that you can recognize a lot of the way that the food evolved. And as more ingredients became available, the Italians took it on as their own. But I was just really enamored with the idea that these people love to eat just as much as we do now and would search and Apicius searched the world for the choicest ingredients. He went to Libya for prawns. We know that because the historian Pliny tells us that. We know that he searched just all over the place. He loved the best wine. He looked for the best honey. And he was somebody that was very much into looking for the choicest and best ingredients for all of his dishes. It's a key part of making anything good today, so we can relate to it. it. may not be we have to go all the way to Libya, but maybe we say, okay, Whole Foods has the good this, and this little fishmonger in town has that, and so you put it all together. And I thought that that was a great part of it, where you could still relate, even though it was so long ago, and you choose a slave here in Thracius that we can also relate to, even though we haven't been held in slavery, we can relate to the fact that something like he's teaching a class and he's dealing with a troublemaking know-it-all student. And you could say, oh, I remember that guy when you read this. Yep. And you can relate to him and know him. And one of the things about his slavery is how different it is from what we think of in parts of the world today or human bondage in the Americas. It was a different lot in life. So even though he's a slave and you think of it as a static existence when you read about most lives in slavery, you're born a slave. Unfortunately, you die a slave unless you're very fortunate what was the lot in life for the average slave in ancient Rome, much less a very talented one like Thracius? So that's one of the things that I really struggled with, actually, when I was writing the book was 
how do I take this idea of slavery, which is extremely different than what we know of, particularly in the Americas today with black slavery, and make it so that people understand it and realize that it was very different. The ancient Romans, the empire at the time that I was writing was almost at its absolute peak. And what they did is they conquered all of these other nations and they brought back all their winnings, which included people. And so they would bring slaves back from all sorts of parts of the world. So you would have slaves from Germania, you would have slaves from Ibernia, which was Ireland, you would have slaves from Gaul, from Turkey, from all sorts of places. And they would come back to Rome. And so it became an incredible melting pot of nationalities and religion and ethnicity and diversity. And also those influences with food, I imagine as well. But the slavery was very different in the sense that Sometimes you were born a slave and you died a slave. But on average, you also had the opportunity to earn what they called a peculum, which was essentially a salary. And the word salary actually comes from, from the salt mine, salario, the idea that you're mining for salt and you get a little bit of money as a result of it. So you could earn what they called the peculum. And that was basically an allowance or a small salary, a stipend that your master kept for you, but it went towards you being able to earn and pay for your freedom. And usually slaves at the age of 35 could buy their own freedom. And once they bought their freedom, they were also able to vote. They were considered full citizens. They had the ability to actually just be part of that society. They would not have been able to rise to the ranks of a senator, but they could definitely own businesses and be a regular person in Roman society. They often remained within the household of the master. And oftentimes, even though slaves might still be a slave, there were often amorous relationships between slaves and masters. Slaves often became part of households. Slaves were sometimes very well-learned, not always, but certainly in some cases, because slaves often were the ones that became scribes, or they were the ones that taught the master's children. So you having educated slaves was not necessarily an unusual thing, particularly if they had also been bought from other places. Yeah, it was a very different society. And 35, by the way, I'm thinking as you're describing it, that's not young. It's not what we think of as 35 today either. It's an older person. The best of your life, I guess, is gone by, but you still might have some opportunity and something to have a little bit of hope about and look forward to. Yeah. And I think the idea of back then, when you think of life expectancy, you hear, oh, life expectancy was 35 or 40. What you're not taking into account of that is things like women dying in childbirth at the age of 15 or people in the salt mines who are dying at the age of 20 because it's such a hard job. You have people at various ends of the spectrums, the very wealthy and the people that lived in the cities and had access to clean running water and a little bit more things that were healthy for them often lived into their 80s. Many of the people that we know that were senators and philosophers, they definitely lived into their 80s. So 35 was considered old in some ways, but not really. So you could earn your slavery at 35 and still have another 20 or 30 years left, no problem. If you made it to 35, if you made it out of childhood and infancy, yes. I guess you would have a good shot to at least live. You proved yourself uh, physically by that point that you maybe would have a life to continue to live. That's interesting. 
Yeah, exactly. Since we don't want to give away the ending in a novel, I like to ask authors to read a passage from their book. And by the way, for not giving away the ending, I hope nobody's rushed off and Googled Apicius's end because you don't want to spoil the novel for yourselves. It's much, much better to read it than just read an epitaph, right? Nobody wants to just read an obituary. You want to find out about the person's life. Set this selection up for us. Tell us what we're going to hear from Feast of Sorrow and then have at it. Uh, So this is a very short passage that'll give you a bit of a flavor, in some ways almost literally, of the types of food and the way that the master and slave talk to each other. So Thracius has just been purchased by Apicius, and they are walking from the slave market over to where a fortune teller is, and the fortune teller is going to give them what actually is a very dire fortune. But they are walking through the market. And there is also another man with them, Sotus, who is the body slave for Apicius. And a body slave is a slave that accompanies him literally everywhere, sleeps at the foot of his bed or at his doorway, is in the room at pretty much every given moment that this person is alive. So the three of them are walking from the market and to what they call the Harrispex, the fortune teller. After the slave master had removed my shackles and thrown a threadbare tunic at me, Apicius motioned for me to follow. Sotus followed behind. As we made our way through the Baie streets, I could sense unease in my new dominus. Perhaps he was having second thoughts about the high price he paid for me. When he spoke, it was with impatience. Tonight I'm having a small cana with few close friends. Tell me what you will make for the meal. I faltered at my new master's words. I gazed up at the laundry line strung between the insulae as we walked past, the colorful stole hanging out to dry. The sun was already past its apex. I am unsure of the staples in your kitchen. I kept my eyes down. My stomach churned as if I had eaten a rotten apple. A picky stepped around a small group of boys playing a game of knuckle bones. Never mind that. If you had any ingredient at your disposal, what would you make? Um, You said it was a small dinner. Yes, he affirmed. In that case, I would begin with a gustachio of salad with peppers and cucumbers, melon with mint, with wholemeal bread, soft cheese, and honey cake. I tried to draw in my memory of one of the last meals I'd made for Maximus. Apicius licked his lips. Yes, yes, go on. Then pomegranate ice to cleanse the palate, followed by a cana prima of saffron chickpeas, Parthian chicken, peppered morels and wine, mussels and oysters. If I had more time, I would also serve a stuffed suckling pig, and to close, a pear patina, along with deep-fried honey fritters, snails, olives, and if you have it on hand, some wine from Chios or Puglia. Perfect. Simple, and the flavors would blend nicely at the beginning of a meal. Good, good. So that's um, a short piece that talks a little bit about some of the food that Thracius makes for Apicius. And there are a lot of meals and a lot of feasts and a lot of food in this book. And (laughs) both of these characters think in terms of food too. So even the way that they describe the world around them is very often through the lens of a meal that they've had or an ingredient that they savor. And a lot of Romans, a lot of Roman names. I found myself 
surprised at how fast I was able to know who was who, because often you read a book and all the names are very similar. And a book back in ancient Rome, the names are so different. There's not a bunch of Steves and Bobs and Bettys in there. They're all they're all very Roman names. The first time when I saw Apicius, I said, not to be confused with his twin brother, Apicky Eater. And then that was how it <laughs> stuck in my head. But it really was something where you had to choose here what names to use and change a few. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely some of the people were real people and you didn't want to change those names around. Some of the names are very similar. And in the sense that Italians, even today, they still do this and certain cultures actually do where you name people very much after their fathers or you just name people the same name. So like, it's very common today to have, you know, 30 Giuseppes in the last couple generations of your family. So for example, there's two Germanicuses, there's two Tiberiuses, there's two Drususes. So that gets very confusing. And I, I had to really be careful with that. And in fact, there is a Drusus who's Claudius's son, Emperor Claudius's son, that I gave a nickname to because it was just, I didn't want people to be confused because there's also another character who is a real person named Drusus in the book. So I tried to be thoughtful of that because the names are unusual and there's a lot of names and I didn't want people to be too confused. One thing that is very funny, though, is that there is a very ancient name that I intended to use in the book, but my early readers didn't like it because they thought it was too modern, because it is a modern name we still use today, and that's the name Melissa. Melissa is a very ancient Roman name, and I tried to use it in the book, and people were like, no, no, that just takes me into the present. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. Sounds like a John Hughes film. Yes. <laughs> it's actually Honeybee. Is it Honey? Honey, right? Yes. There's a, there's a Greek brand of orzo that's called Melissa, and you look at that and think the same thing. But it's a name that's just still with us, just like the body slave. You mentioned that. We have today in our presidents and our candidates a body man. The most famous recently was probably Reggie Love, who was one of Barack Obama's friends from way back, and he stood with him and made sure he was always there. That was your that was your go-to guy. It's, yeah. it's kind of a th interesting to look at how similar this world is to our world. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities, even things like it, it, ranging from politics to food to our literature and our culture and the way that they just the way they thought about the world. There's a lot of similarities. You're enjoying my chat with Crystal King about her book, Feast of Sorrow, a novel of ancient Rome. Visit our guest at crystalking.com, Crystal Lynn on Twitter or Facebook.com slash Crystal Lynn King. This spelling is C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-L-Y-N. In a starred review, Library Journal writes of Feast of Sorrow, quote, King's descriptions of the food and entertainment are exquisite. Her characters are beautifully drawn, and events and people of the times are deftly woven throughout. And they add, a delight to the senses. King's debut novel is to be savored and devoured. Crystal, I love that a novel can be enjoyed exactly as they described. We talk there about food and about thinking about things as food. And just as you dig into a fine meal and feel satisfied after you finish, or maybe you want to sit there and savor it, you say, you know, I'm just going to wait and have the next course and stretch it out a little bit. You're not just eating some fast food here to fuel yourself. Sometimes you're in the mood for fast food. And just like with a novel, sometimes you just want to read something on a plane and get it in an airport bookshop and you forget it by the time you land. 
This one sticks with you in your stomach. You have that warm, full feeling when you're reading it. It really is something that relates to all of those eating metaphors, all those food metaphors. So I wanted to ask you, as an author and as a reader, what favorite books that you like to munch on, so to speak, those great literary meals that you remember years later, how great they tasted in your mind as you're reading them. Which one of those would you like to see Feast of Sorrows compared to? And are you already hearing some of those comparisons, for instance, in those great Amazon reviews? Oh, yeah, that's that's tough. I read so widely and in various genres that I don't know if there's one that sticks out to me or not. I know that Epicurious, the site and magazine, they they basically had a, an article about the next five food books that you want to read that will be the next Sweet Bitter. And Sweet Bitter is a book by Stephanie Dandler, who um, it came out last year in the summer. And it was like the food book that took the world by storm. And that was a really wonderful comparison because it was a book that I read and really appreciated and loved. Very different book, but still all about food. There's a lot of food books that I really love, and I've been a big fan of MFK Fisher for years, and she's probably the person that really became the first one to make food writing a thing, and I love her work, and there's some really wonderful food writing and books that are out there these days. I think that there's some incredible Roman authors that, Stephen Saylor and Colleen McCullough, that... I just aspire to have the same kind of love for my book that they have. And it's hard because I think books are so subjective and people like books for very different reasons. And I'm not entirely sure how to compare my book because it's not a Roman mystery, which a lot of Roman books are. It's not a pure food book. It sort of crosses those lines in between. You are in a unique genre because you kind of are almost creating your own. You'd see a novel of ancient Rome, maybe you would expect those things. And I know for me, and I read very widely myself, I certainly get sent a lot of books now, but my whole life, this is one that I wouldn't even have conceived of. If I picked it up and said, okay, why does it have food on the cover? I'd probably wonder. And so uh, I'm just really impressed with the fact that you were able to get people so interested on it and they all got on board with you and wanted to enjoy this ride with you. They believed in the project. Well, it's it's something that I discovered that a lot of people haven't talked a lot about the chefs in the world. There's so many uncelebrated people that made the lives of other people really much better, actually. So my second book is actually about a Renaissance chef, a man who was the cook to several popes and cardinals in Renaissance Rome. And so I just love the idea that these people helped better other people's lives and gave other people great pleasure in their food and their cooking. But nobody knows much about their lives. We just know about their cooking and their the recipes that they left behind. And I love that. You also write about the women here of ancient Rome. We haven't mentioned that at all in Feast of Sorrow. You have so many women characters and people, again, maybe we just think of that all-male Senate. We think of centurions. We do get an image of that when we think of ancient Rome. You have Apicius's daughter here. What did you hope readers would experience by attending a Roman courtship and wedding and watching that slice of Roman life? So there's two pieces of actual fact there that I played with in the book. So Apicata, because of naming conventions, there is a woman named Apicata who is married to the Praetorian guard Sejanus. But because of naming conventions, some historians think that Apicata could have been Apicius's daughter. 
And so then the other piece of history that we know is from Pliny about how Apicius paid for sex with Sejanus when they were young. And I was thinking, well, how did that happen? Why would you sleep with this guy and then marry your daughter to him? And so I played with that in the book a bit. And Apicotta was a real person, but we know nothing about her life because with the exception of a couple things that actually occur at the end of the book, we know a bit about Sejanus. Sejanus was somebody who tried to overthrow Emperor Tiberius. And I play with those political events in the book as well. In general, women were considered people that should be more seen and not heard necessarily. But of course, you do have some strong women. They were property. The Roman wedding actually is very interesting in the way that the women were given to the men during a wedding. Rome was founded in some ways through some very nefarious means. There is this tradition in ancient Roman weddings that you would recreate the capture of the Sabine brides. There were some women that were taken from their homes because that when the men founded Rome, they didn't have any wives. They didn't have, there was no women when the men conquered the people that were there. So they actually went to these other tribes and they stole these women, the Sabine women, they stole them. And they decided that they liked the Roman men better and they stayed. And so in ancient Roman weddings, they actually recreate the kidnapping of these Sabine brides and the ancient Roman woman who's marrying the man, the men's family and friends forcefully remove the bride from uh, her family and carry her off. And there's great show of, no, please don't take me, you know, don't take me away. They basically recreate it. Can you imagine if we did that today instead of just having the father or whoever the man is march down the aisle and give away the bride if we had her being dragged <laughs> in there forcefully making a show? I don't know. It might be a little bit more exciting, but I don't think it would be uh, I don't think it'd be very good. I guess there's some things from back then that are so different from today, but there are enough things that are similar that we can say we recognize this world. Yes. Yeah. I want to ask you about one of the ingredients in the book, and you have many of those things that maybe people haven't tasted before, but one that we can kind of relate to is garum, a fish salt, and it has an interesting history itself. It's the first factory-produced food, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so there's two ingredients in the Roman dishes that are really fascinating, and I'll tell you about both of them. Garum is one of them. Garum was, it was essentially the first, what they believe were first ingredient that was created through a factory type of method. And garum was a fish sauce that it was made from the entrails of anchovies. So basically they would cut open anchovies, leave all the entrails out and spread them out on nets. The juices would flow through the nets into these containers of some sort, and then they would ferment that the juice would ferment. That is made almost exactly the way that Thai and Vietnamese fish sauce are made today. Yeah. So if you've ever eaten Thai or Vietnamese food, you've likely eaten this type of fish sauce. There is also a sauce called colatura, which is made in Italy today, which plays on those ancient ways of making garum. And garum was used in almost every single dish in ancient Rome, including their desserts. And... When I was recreating some of these dishes, I was a little bit concerned because I'm not a fish fan. I grew up landlocked in the middle of Idaho and eastern Washington, and fish was just not something I ate a lot of. And so the idea of cooking with fish sauce was very daunting. But what I discovered is that fish sauce lends 
a slightly salty umami flavoring to foods that when you're cooking with it, because you use it very sparingly. And the ancient Romans did not use salt to season their foods. They used salt to preserve foods. So you would use garum instead of salt because of it lent a salty flavoring to the foods that you were eating. And so that's something I find really fascinating. It was an ingredient I was worried to try, but it turned out to be awesome. And then the other ingredient that was in everything as well was this herb called sylphium. And there were two types of herbs that were very similar, sylphium and laser. And laser is actually an herb that we still essentially have today under another name, under the name asafetida, which is a Middle Eastern spice or an Indian spice, sometimes called hing or devil's dung. And it's called devil's dung because it's super stinky. Wow. Um, but when you dry, <laughs> it, it doesn't smell great. But when you dry <laughs> roast it, it has the flavor of garlic, essentially a very garlicky garlic. And they use laser, but they also use this other herb, sylphium. And they had very similar flavor profiles, but sylphium was considered to be superior. Sylphium was only cultivated on an island off the coast of Libya called Cyrenica. And they found one of the things about sylphium is that not only did they flavor all of their food with it, the wealthy did, but it was used um, for birth control. And it apparently was an extremely effective method of birth control. So women drank teas or potions with it. And they also used it for abortions as well. Basically, they over-cultivated it. They couldn't figure out how to grow this herb anywhere else. And so they ran out of sylphium. I play upon that in the novel as well. And Emperor Nero was rumored to have had the last sprig of sylphium, and he looked at it more of as an oddity than anything else. That's something to see something that went extinct in herb. I heard you in an interview say, well, that's it's gone, it's extinct. Something else to think about that we are used to having all the same foods and saying they don't have foods we have, like the tomato, like the lemon that we mentioned, pasta. But here's something they had that nobody has tasted in thousands of years, so we just have to imagine it. Yeah. I mean, and the good thing is that apparently asafetida is actually sort of close to it. So we at least have an, a sense of what it might have been like. And author doesn't want a reader to set down the book, but your readers will be getting hungry, as I imagine some listeners are now wanting to taste some of these dishes, experiment a little, something that you don't get out of every novel. You don't usually want to go and cook something out of it. You've usually had it already. So this is something where your research not only adds to the prose, but it makes it a little bit interactive. You are a social media person, so you're active at crystalking.com, on Twitter and Facebook. How do you like to share these recipes that would appeal to modern palates, and what are the reactions? Yeah, so I actually have a cookbook that I put together that is primarily right now we're giving it out to press into book clubs. If you have a book club that is interested in reading Feast of Sorrow and you want to have a Roman party and recreate some of those dishes, um, you can, there's a sign-up form on my website under the book clubs, and I can send out a copy of the digital cookbook. Alternatively, you can also sign up for my emailing list at crystalking.com, and then I send out some of the recipes that have been recreated in in that mailing list once a month, I send out a new recipe. And I also share them periodically on my blog. And some of the recipes have been recreated from chefs like Barbara Lynch, from food historians like Ken Albala and Francine Sagan, 
Katie Parla is a well-known Italian cookbook author and travel expert. She contributed a recipe. And so I've been sharing um, these recipes periodically in both my mailing list on my blog. And and then if you're a part of a book club, you get a chance to um, actually uh, experience the whole cookbook. So you can find all that information on my website, crystalking.com. And I'll link to everything there from our historyauthor.com page. So there's no reason not to find it next time you're looking for something to cook and you can't think of a single thing. If you love to cook and you're looking for something special, why not go back to ancient Rome? Why not find something that has not only a story behind the recipe, which is great, but it has an entire book to back it up. Yes. And I, and there's a lot of recipes that we would not have eaten in ancient Rome, things like boiled sow's vulva after it had given birth and fried dormice and crunchy flamingo tongues. And I swear none of that's in there. <laughs> I was going to order the crunchy flamingo tongues for lunch and now you've put me off. Them. Oh, sorry, man. Yeah. <laughs> You're out of luck. <laughs> Those poor flamingos out there mute for nothing. <laughs> Okay, every meal must come to an end, even the great ones, and so must our interview. I have one final question. I read where you have cats named Nero and Merlin. Merlin, so that gives us a hint at that second novel about the Renaissance or from the Renaissance, a Renaissance chef. And, of course, we had Nero ready in ancient Rome. So when you need a third book idea, if you've started to think that far ahead, are you going to need to get a third cat and name it something that's sort of contemporary to keep you motivated? Oh, I'm, I could be crazy cat lady. I'm all for that. Definitely. <laughs> we actually call Merlin Merle though. So he's a little more contemporary than, than you might imagine. Well, I'm looking forward to that second book. This was really an excellent read, especially for a debut novelist. You should be very proud of it. I hope people will catch a little bit of my excitement here and want to get a flavor of the book. It's 2017. You can read a little bit of it online on Amazon, any site where you want to get it, taste some of the recipes. I really think think you'll enjoy it. Even if you aren't a person that's crazy for ancient Rome, I don't read a ton about it, but this book brought me in, hooked me and kept my interest. I enjoyed it so much. I'm looking forward to checking out some of these dishes to cook myself as a cook and the author of a cookbook, Regional Greek Cooking. I love the ones that were from ancient Greece and there's so much to learn about food. It really is something that connects us across that great human story. It links us to the past. We can taste it right here in the present. Your novel had plenty to tell us about people, about Rome, about love, and about that universal pleasure, the good meal. Thank you so much for this literary feast of fiction, and best of luck now that Feast of Sorrows is on the shelves. Thank you so much. I enjoyed being here. Again, the book is Feast of Sorrow, a novel of ancient Rome. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy, at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Crystal King for joining us and for giving us a seat at a very exciting dinner table in ancient Rome. Remember to visit her either by navigating through her page at historyauthor.com or go straight to crystalking.com, follow her at Crystal Lynn on Twitter or facebook.com slash King. 
That spelling one last time is C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-L-Y-N. And while you're connecting with Crystal, don't forget to let us know what you think of Feast of Sorrow and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this delicious installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to meet. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular 